0: Good morning. Happy Mother's Day to the moms, as uh, Pastor McKinney said, and uh, great to just be with you on this Mother's Day. Thankful that the rain came yesterday and did not come today. Um, Good Bergen kids in the room, you guys can head out to the back, uh, to the classroom, where you're going to learn about Jesus and be taught. The rest of you, great to... uh, Just be with you. Love being with the saints. Love being with the family of God. If you're visiting too, just thrilled that you're uh, joining us as well. We love seeing the new faces, seeing those of you who are seeking, those of you who are doubting, those of you who are skeptical. And uh, you you came at a really great time as we're walking through a book that's really for uh, all of us, but especially those who uh, are really considering what's the meaning of life? What's the point of being here? Is there a God? Is there not? If there is, what does that mean for me? If there's not, what does that mean for me? And uh, we've got the wisest man who ever lived outside of Jesus Christ who's going to tell us uh, how to understand understand life, how to understand meaning, how to understand a purpose in this beautiful book of Ecclesiastes. So uh, it's been an awesome study and been great to be in it with you. Um, uh, just before we uh, get rolling, just as a way to honor and to love uh, the moms in this room, really wanted to just pray specifically for you, over you. Uh, if you would just stand, if you're a mom um, right now, um, and uh, there's tons in here, so that's weird that none are here. So... Um, just want to, if you're, if you're uh, married to one of these moms or know them, if you would just put your hand on them as we pray that God would continue to fill them with his spirit and give them courage and grace and they remember their primary worth is bound up not in how they mother or how they discipline children, but that Jesus Christ has owned them And bought them. So uh, let's thank God and ask God to do something gracious in them. God, thank you for um, the gift of motherhood. Thank you for those in this room, God, who are moms. And we uh, just pray that across the spectrum, as we were reminded earlier, that there are a slew of feelings and emotions and thoughts. So uh, would the Holy Spirit bring about peace and rest in every heart in the ways that are helpful and edifying to you. We pray for these moms that... God, you'd use them for the kingdom of God, that their hearts would grow bigger for the kingdom of God each day, that they would love seeing and being used by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. God, we pray that their children would flourish under their motherhood. We pray that their husbands would benefit greatly from their helpfulness. We pray that they would be Um, So deeply encouraged to God to be freed from the enslavement that culture would say identifies them and owns them and that they be freed to live in the lanes you've asked of them because Jesus is their worth, Jesus is their altar, Jesus is their king, and Jesus is ultimately the only thing they have and will have that will continue forever. So Father, we pray right now that you would encourage hearts that are saddened, that are um, broken, we pray for moms in this room, or even just people in this place that have dark memories of their own mom, or what it means to be a mom, Father, would you encourage them this morning that you adopt into a new family that is perfect, God who will reign and rule together for one day, eternity, without pain, suffering, anxiety, and struggle. And God, now speak to us as we hear from your scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, Ecclesiastes chapter one, if you are brand new to the Bible, brand new to Christianity and you're going, okay, where is Ecclesiastes? That doesn't even sound like a book that I'm familiar with in the Bible. It's uh, right in the dead center of your Old Testament pretty much. It's a, a wisdom book. There's Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and um, Song of Solomon. It's right in there. So if you find Psalm, Proverbs, probably the, one of the two books you're most familiar with if you don't even attend church, uh, it's right after that. So uh, get there, land there, and open it up to Ecclesiastes chapter one and um, Just so you know, there's a number of genres in your Bible, and and the wisdom literature are are not necessarily, you can't really read wisdom literature in such a way that it um, basically prescribes things for you as much as it describes things for you. So um, even this book alone, it's a book that really just is going to ask you a bunch of questions. And I shared last week how in my crisis of faith, when I opened up my Bible and I just started charting through Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, going, God, reveal yourself to me. Show me what is true. Show me what is good. Show me who you are. Show me who I am as I did those things as I walked through that. I remember hitting this book, and I told you, you can't really hit this book without being bothered a little bit, right, because Solomon doesn't give you any answers, he just asks you a ton of questions, and you have to read every book with the silhouette of Jesus behind it. If you don't read your Bible seeing and looking for Jesus Christ, your Bible will never make sense. If you don't read your Bible based upon how God will save, how God will redeem, how God will make much of his name, the Bible won't make sense. So when you start at Genesis 1, creation through the commands of God in the Torah, right? You're not going to understand that if you don't see the commands weren't primarily given for you to show you that you couldn't keep them, and there is a God who sent one who could on your behalf to rescue you in your sinful state. So you have to see everything that way. The prophets, we see prophets go and declare and tell that this Messiah will come. He will redeem and restore what went wrong in Genesis 3, and if you don't understand that, you're going to read it wrong. If you get to the wisdom literature and you think that, man, Solomon had 700 wives, so I can do that. That you're a moron. Like that's not, it didn't go well for him. It didn't work out good for him. His life ended in tears because he thought, hey, my wisdom's better than the wisdom of God. And here he is at the end of his life recounting for you, hey, here's how to protect you. Here's what to pay attention to. Here's what to consider so that you don't go down the same path that I went down. So it's really good for us to read wisdom literature and read these books not as prescriptive for us but more as descriptive for us in that way. So that's how we're going to see Ecclesiastes. This is how we're going to read Ecclesiastes. And uh, what I want to do is just read the section. We're going to start in verse 12, but it won't be on the screen. I just want to read it. If you have your Bible, Ecclesiastes 1, 12 to 18 is going to be the block we're in. And uh, just follow with me as we get a full account of what Solomon's going to say. He says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing everyone who was over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And I perceived even this also was a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. How encouraging. Right? Amen. Right? So, so we're going to see why this is encouraging that he's going to lay before us these things and these thoughts. So here in the end is what Ecclesiastes is going to say. And I'm going to keep saying this at the beginning of every uh, time we open up the scriptures to Ecclesiastes, so we're, we're, we're reminded of this. But here is essentially what Solomon is going to get after. He's going to go aggressively after your heart to say this. You can accumulate and chase everything that's under the sun, right, untethered to the God of the universe and find that it's vanity, find that it's chasing after the wind. So you can get your new 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 York City job that you've always wanted. You can work yourself up in the stocks. You can have the children perfectly obedient. You can have the marriage you always dreamed of. You can have the house on the plot of land that was always in your fantasies. You can have All of that, but if it's not tied to the God of the universe, you've totally lost. Like it's totally chasing after the wind. So he's going to say, don't let the goal of your life be self-indulgence. Don't let the goal of your life be self-esteem. Don't be the goal of your life be all of these things that the world and culture will say to chase. Let your goal be God in the face of Jesus Christ and let it be him and him alone, right? Colossians will echo this and say, fullness of life is lived to him, for him, from him, and of him. Right, So that's what Solomon's going to continue to say for us. And he's sitting you down basically as a wise grandpa going, hey, listen to grandpa. (laughs) Listen to these things I've learned. You're youthful. You haven't lived as long as I have. You don't have as much wisdom that I have. You haven't owned as much as I have. No one has had or accumulated the wealth and the wisdom that Solomon had. And so he's going to show us that even though he had more money, enjoyed more pleasure, possessed more wisdom than us and anyone, it all ended in tears untethered to God. You always gotta remember that limitation, right? The limitation we learned last week is always, this is all under the sun, this is all from the vantage point, not tied to the supernatural, but to the natural alone. Okay, and that's how he comes to these conclusions. So he's, he's protecting us from we, our belief in that, that new house or that new, new toy or that new spouse or that new job or that new thing will somehow accumulate for us what we are trying to validate in our souls as the reason we exist. And that's why when you get new stuff, you know that strange relief and excitement you get that you feel like somehow that validates your existence? He's going, no, 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 that only leaves your soul half full. It's not gonna leave your soul not lacking at all. And so just just to let you know, as we go through this book, um, I I spoke with a lot of you through email, so encouraged at God's work. Remember, this is difficult stuff. Um, But listen, we gotta deal with the difficult stuff. You wanna know why? Because God's committed to your joy. You know why that's good? Because I know everyone in this room, even though I might not know you at all, you're committed to your joy. You wanna know why? Because everybody is. So so g- this is good for us. He's gonna lay before us things that are ultimately trying to get us out from under what we believe will find fullness of life to what really gives us fullness of life. And so verse 12, here's what Solomon wrote to us. He said, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I plied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. And it's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that's done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. <laughs> so if you read 1 Kings, you'll see that David, remember we discussed last week, David is Solomon's father, and Bathsheba is his mother. So David dies, hands over the kingdom to Solomon, and God basically says, Hey, Solomon, you can ask anything of me. And Solomon doesn't ask for power, he doesn't ask for wealth. He says, Hey, I want wisdom. I want a ton of wisdom, a ton of knowledge, and God gives him that, and here's the thing. This wisdom that Solomon gets isn't something that's instantaneously learned, and he all of a sudden knows the knowledge of everything. It's something he applied over the course of his life. It's something that he learned over time, and so Solomon is sitting here going, I devoted my time, my affections, my thoughts, my emotions, my life to answer this question, what's the meaning of life? Why am I here? Why am I existing? Why am I going through the mill that we call, you know, Monday morning to Sunday night? Why do I do anything that I do? Why do I devote my energy and my toil to all of those things? And he reminds us of the limitations. So his pursuit of going, hey, is life meaningful, was only based upon what he could touch, taste, smell, and hear. He's saying this is all based upon the natural world. That's why you're going to see throughout this book, he's going to take all this learned wisdom and he's going to pit it against everything that the world would say are the proclivities of the human heart. So he's going to take all the wisdom he's learned tied solely to the natural world and he's going to go, hey, let's pit that against all these proclivities of the human heart. Let's do it against wealth. Let's do it against power. Let's do it against religion. Let's do it against friendships. Let's do it against work. Let's do it against the chasing of pleasure. He's going to pit this constantly against those things, and when all is said and done, he's going to come up with the same conclusion over and over and over. It's vanity. It's totally meaningless. If we are not from anywhere, not headed anywhere, then right here and now is completely and utterly meaningless and have enough intellectual integrity to answer that honestly. And so here he's rolling that out for us. And so here's the question that he's driving the human heart this morning, and he's gonna to continue to drive it. Where are you from and where are you going? That's what he's gonna keep basically showing in his questions, like do you have a place where things started and do you have an ultimate destination? What do those things look like? And Because here's the reality, right? Um, friends, if, if we don't know where we come from and you don't know where you're heading to, then, then you've got no clue what to do now, right? I mean, no one needs an elementary degree to know that, right? So you got to know where you're from, where you're headed. So, so you've got the atheist, right? Maybe that's some of you in this room. You, you believe that there is no good, gracious, benevolent God who made all things, sustains all things, so you don't really come from anything but that accidental existence that happened. And so you're kind of electromagnetic molecules where you love just because it's this chemical reason to want to love, but really, you've got nowhere you're ultimately going. So how do you strain out meaning? You can't. There's no meaning now. The agnostic who thinks human reason doesn't really have enough fabric to define and say if there is a God or not a God, so I'm kind of floating in this uncertain world, but really you've got no meaning then if you don't have something to tie it where you're from and something to tie it where you're to. We talked last week that humanism can't answer that question. Hedonism can't answer that question. Empiricism alone can't answer that question. Existentialism can't answer that question. You need something outside of you to give you revelation, to show you that where we come from and where we're going is deeply one of vast meaning. So the Christian believes we come from the God of the Scriptures, are going to the God of the Scriptures, and right now we live for the God of those Scriptures. And so life is profound in meaning and depth and insight. And so we live according to this. But if not, it is meaningless. And so he says, "This is why he says in this text." Didn't take me long to see it's an unhappy business that God gave the human race. What's he saying? Um, if you've lived long enough, you know life is hard. Right? This is where like the youth in the room, they, they think, man, life is just crushing it. I'm living at home, eating off my parents' lucky charms, right, the mortgage is paid. I mean, you're just loving life. You just do it, your, your college expenses maybe are even you know owned by your parents. You've got all that stuff just, just happening for you. You go to college, have some fun, take classes. Yeah, wait till you work, right? Wait till you get married. Wait till you have kids. And then everything bites back. Right? Circle of life just rinses and repeats, right? Start so seeing your sin. Come out your kids. And anyone who's lived long enough, especially like Solomon's going, life is hard. Life is hard. Hard family relations we face in this world. Things people say about you. What you wish you had but don't have. The affirmation you wish you were receiving but you don't get. The recognition that you think you're obligated to receive that you don't receive. The daily frustrations in life. Life is an unhappy business if it's solely viewed under the sun apart from revelation from God. Right? It's just meaningless. There's no point. The frustrations, suffering's not tied to anything. Joy is not tied to anything. Happiness isn't tied to anything. The absence isn't tied to anything. Nothing's tied to anything if you're solely living, not coming from anywhere, not heading to anywhere, and solely the here and now. It's really why do anything meaningful? We saw last week, the person who lives with outright love and compassion and grace and the person who lives with outright racism and wickedness still find themselves in the same question, apart from God going, Why do either of those things if it really doesn't make a lasting dent at all when all is said and done? And so all these things bite at our souls. And here's what Solomon is saying he's learned in regards to happiness. <laughs> he's talking about happiness here. Listen, happiness is such a funny thing. Um, Because here's what happiness is. Happiness are those good-natured emotions that really only show up when your whole universe, according to you, is perfectly aligned, right? So so it, it, for you, happiness is, okay, when in my bank account I have X amount of dollars. Um, happiness for me is windows down, breezy, cool summer evening. Um, all the mechanical appliances in my house are not breaking. The Amazon orders show up just as I order them, right? Your spouse is doing Ephesians 5. Like everyone is just cruising at an altitude where it's just great. So all of a sudden, you're all aligned, and happiness for you is just great, Right? Like, I mean, everything's happy. everything's good, because according to you, the good-willed emotions have aligned for you. Now now here's the reality, right? Um, none of us don't know this. None of us haven't woken up and realized there's all been a day. Maybe it was this morning before we even drove in here. Maybe it was yesterday, maybe it was this past week, where uh, your whole day's going well, at least a chunk of your day is going really well, and someone can say one sentence that will destroy your universe. Or you can get one piece of news that'll take you to the floor. And happiness is gone, right? It's evaporated within an instant. Because here's the thing about happy. Happy can, can be quite momentary, can it? It tends to always leave you, right? It tends to never stay and linger. It's like that unicorn you're constantly chasing, Right? You're just desperately trying to find this happiness, this meaning, and because we've all had those days. And so happiness is, listen, it's a short-lived passion that will not sustain you through the difficulties of life. It can't. So, So you're chasing something in, worldly happiness, cultural happiness, that is impossible to sustain you through the trials of this life under the sun. Because the first thing to go with any pain, plight, or difficulties are happiness. So here's what Solomon is continuing to get at. He's basically saying, avoid making anything God other than God. Like, avoid putting anything on the altar of your heart. Avoid the pursuit of happiness over the pursuit of joy. Right? That's what, that's what we're talking about. Because the scriptures, if you read the scriptures, it's very interesting. I mean, if you really pay attention to them, the Bible will constantly say and constantly never say something. So I, I hardly read a verse that says, man, God made you, God orchestrated all things so that your existence would be happy. Now, it does give you commands in the Psalms, happy is the man who does this, happy is the man who does this, blessed is the man who does this, but he didn't say, I came to make you happy. He says in John 10, 10, I came that you might have joy and have it to the full. Here's the difference. If you pursue happiness, it can be taken from you. If you pursue joy, it can't be taken from you if it's rooted in the God who lives over the Son. So joy is this dark day sustaining, worship altering, God focused, directive thing that he put in your soul when you meet Jesus Christ that enables you to walk through the trials of the day. I mean, you see this throughout the New Testament. I mean, you see men and women with deep abiding joy, not happiness, being sustained in that. I mean, you have the first martyr in Acts 7, right? I mean, his name's Stephen. He's being stoned to death and he's going, Lord, forgive them. Is he happy? No, that that's that's God showed them the same grace, mercy, kindness you've showed me you got Paul in Lystra, Acts 14, right? I mean, they, they, they leave him for dead outside the city, hate that he's preaching the gospel, and they think he's dead, leave him, what does he do? Gets up going, oh, they need to know Jesus, right? He walks right back in. All of us are going, I'd stay out, I'd stay down, I'd act like a possum, right? You just, you'd forget about it. You wouldn't want to go back in there. But, but what drives Paul in the face of difficulty and almost death, it's not a happy, fleeting, good emotion, it's deep-rooted joy in something that's outside of him. This is why we've got to be careful of culture. Culture says, hey, find the inner you, the superhero that's there, and just think happy thoughts and be positive and work your way there. And listen, that's a dangerous road that will consistently hit a wall and leave you empty. Which is why every book in Barnes & Noble you walk in to read is going to feed you that. And which is why you consistently buy more because you're consistently frustrated. (laughs) Come on, come on, how come this only lasted for three months? How come this only lasted for two years? Two years. It can energize you for a while, but eventually it leaves you off. And So joy can't be taken from you, but happiness can. So he's showing us the unhappy business of being under the sun, but trying to get you to see that there's a true rooted joy you can have that's over the sun. Because here, here's what happens um, all the time, and I, I see it a lot, uh, in just getting to meet with people. Um, we say no to God in unbelief. So you can pick the sin, right? Or pick the thing that you want. Pick the thing that you desire to chase more than him, okay? Or the thing that your affections are greater for than him. So just, just you can think of that thing in your mind. So, so that person wants that. That person pursues that. Per, that person chases that. And here's the two errors we make. Um, we either think God's just trying to make us miserable, so I'm going to pick this thing instead, or God wants me to be happy, so why is this happening, Right so so we don't see God's for my joy God's for my ultimate good God has designs and wirings in me that are beyond what I can see think feel touch taste and so we choose these things and we choose outside of His good, pleasing, right commands and wills for our life. And then we end up more miserable than before, right? We heap on more shame, more guilt, more pain, more turmoil. It just it it adds up. Our pyramid just continues to grow, right? Because we think, well, God doesn't want me to be miserable, so this can't be right. Or God just wants me to be happy, so how could he do this? I'll just rebel against him and do this instead. And you forget that God is totally and fully and ferociously committed to your joy, and he's given you that in the one who came in the face of Jesus Christ, right, to give rest to your soul, Psalm 23, to lead you by still waters, to make you lie down in a place that's restful. And he's continuing to, to get at this and show us this, and so he's showing you here, maybe I'm onto something. When you look at the American dream that says life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, maybe there's a reason that's broken, Maybe there's a reason everyone's trying to fix it. Right? was the last time you turned on the news and it was just a great news story about how happiness is almost attained, right? <laughs> no, what's the latest killing? What's the latest thing that Trump did? What's the latest way that we're racist? What's the latest way that we are unjust? What's the latest way that we more fully see the fracture and don't really try to heal it, we actually glorify it? Uh, no one's not admitting this, Right? No one's not admitting something's not broken. No one's not admitting that the world is not crooked. And so we pursue everything outside of the one who made it, thinking that somehow it might be made right. And so God is showing that it's better than the pursuit of happiness to be tethered to God, to have joy that can't be taken from you. So Solomon's going, beware of making your family God. Beware of making material God. Beware of making your job God. Beware of making whatever that is, that thing that you desperately have to have to attain happiness, beware of making that thing God because they're terrible gods. They don't hold the power to uphold your expectations. They're never designed to be God for you in your life. God alone is God. And I say this all the time in almost every marriage counseling situation I sit down with over and over, it's God is not God somewhere. That's always the issue with the restlessness in life. God is not God somewhere. Christ is not Lord, King, Messiah, gracious Father somewhere. And so he says, beware of making anything but God, God. The soul is never made joyful with what's under the sun. It might be happy for a season, but never joyful. So where's that happening for you? Right, where are you chasing the wind? Were you striving for something to give you happiness instead of deep-rooted, dark-sustaining joy? It's pretty easy, right? Just examine why you're angry, why you're bitter. What consistently happens in your life that arouses those emotions over and over and over? What makes your day bad? Right? What makes your day dark? Under the sun, there's a ceiling that you'll never get out of. But praise God we have what's over the sun, and look at what he says. He, he reminds us of this kind of hidden, as he reminds us, why else is this an unhappy business? Verse 15, because what is crooked can't be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. He's saying, if you live life long enough, you know it's hard, you know you've hit loss, you know when you've hit pain, you know when you've hit anxiety, you know suffering and all these things, every time you hit that, you know something is crooked and not straight. Every time you wake up and there's a dark cloud, you know that something is crooked and not straight. You know life is lacking some meaning. He goes, I can't even count it all. It seems like there's an impossibility in front of me. It's so lacking, I can't even count it all up. And here's the thing. Culture's gonna say, just put down your despair and be optimistic, right? Just be humanitarian in the face of it anyway. Just defy the meaninglessness, existence, and be courageous, all while you're walking towards a never-ending defeat. But That's the cycle of insanity that we get caught up in. And here... When culture says that, what they're really saying is just ignore reality. Just ignore the truth. <laughs> when, when, the, when the self-help therapist says, hey, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and just think better, just dream bigger, just pull out some inward motivation that's deep down in there somewhere that'll help you in this, this self-realization, this self-actualization, what they're really doing is saying, hey, just ignore reality. Just ignore what's really at stake. Just ignore how really crooked your heart is. Just ignore how really sinfully bent you are. And ignore how sinfully bent and crooked this world is apart from Jesus Christ the Rescuer. Just ignore that. And try something else. This is the wisest man who ever lived. Not lacking anything. This guy, they thought, people say Solomon, they they estimate had about 35,000 servants. So you want something done? Done. I mean, you got someone for everything. Wash my hands for me, right? Get me toilet paper, mop the floor, cut the grass, turn on the TV, drive me to work, type on my computer, write this email, pick up my phone, Get me a new phone. Get me an upgraded phone. Get me the new iPhone, right? I mean, you just, you got somebody for everything who just does everything at will. He's going, look, no, no, I am the one who can say this. I'm the one who experienced this. I'm the one who has tasted and tried and tested everything. Listen to me. Listen to me when I say these things. And here's what's amazing to me. Solomon, right, who has what we would say in the American dream, the world that all of us would strive for, he comes to the same conclusion that is the same as our darkest day. I mean, if you see that in Ecclesiastes, it's staggering. He, he, he looks at his whole life, at all that he had, all that he did, all that he owned, all the pleasure he afforded himself, all the wives he owned, concubines, family legacy, generations, cattle, house. He looked at all that. It's amazing. He goes, hey, I came to the same conclusion as you and me on our darkest day thinking we are totally lacking and have nothing. It's meaningless in both ends. It's meaningless on both ends. Ends of the spectrum. And here's the truth. It's unpopular, but it's honest and helpful. Sin has infected and affected everything. The fracture in Genesis 3. I mean, we live in a crooked world, right? So the big problem is, not only is everything under the sun crooked, everyone under the sun is crooked by heart, wills, and emotions. Right, so all of us are born out of our mommy's womb to choose a disposition outside of God's ideal, and none of us can say that's a lie. We're rebelling in the womb. We're kicking, we're trying to get out. We're, I mean, and then the moment you're born, you don't have to teach them how to cry, teach them how to be selfish, teach them how to want something that's not theirs, teach them how to act patient. You ever try that on an infant? Oh, just be patient, stop crying, don't want the milk, right? No, they just keep whining and screaming and then as we grow older, we're, we're constantly rebelling against that in our hearts. This is the natural climate of the human soul. We're all born deciding our way is better. We should be God. The one who made it should not be. I've figured it out even though I've got a third grade degree, I somehow think planets should orbit this way, stars should be aligned this way, and an operative relationship should function this way. And God says no. And so he reminds us everything is crooked. And here is what's even more insane. Solomon's going, hey, you know what I've learned even beyond that? The insanity that crooked people think they can make a crooked world straight. You ever thought about that? That's like a guy walking in who's maybe a building you know, a GC, and he can't see straight. And he's got all the leveler, levels and stuff, and he's going, hey guys, I'm here. I'm gonna tell you how to make this whole house be perfectly straight. And what would you guys say? Can we get a professional? <laughs> right, can, can we get somebody who can see this thing, who can build this thing, who can orchestrate this thing? And Solomon's showing us that's the same thing that we need to realize. Because no one disagrees with this, and it's evidenced by everyone trying to make straight in their own way. Everyone's doing it. Everybody. Right? Um, get more organized. Get more sleep. Eat better this way. Get a life coach. Get more meds. Lock up more criminals. Get better government. Put these more people in office. We just, but, but something's not always quite right, right? Something's always a little bit off. I mean, have you ever tried to get the perfect anything? You ever strive for that? I mean, we're all trying to strive for that. Man, okay, I, I just, I need the perfect marriage. How's that going this week? 10 for 10? Right, I mean, I gotta have perfect children. That's my goal, I'm chasing that How's that going this week? 10 for 10? I have to have the perfect job in every way, shape, or form. No, no, how's that going? There's always something a little bit off. There's always something not aligned. There's always something that's crooked that hasn't been made straight. And you can just make the list as long as you want, but it's never quite there. And every generation comes in going, we've got the new plan, right? No, it's just a different plan, not the right plan. There's only one right plan, the Bible says, and that plan is Jesus Christ, the only one who is perfectly straight to make what is crooked rectified, the only one who is not lacking to make whole. Amen? Amen. So we have a Jesus Christ who came and saw the crookedness in this world and restores it all, makes it straight, and doesn't just make the world straight ultimately in the future heavens and new earth, and not only does he use us now as agents of reconciliation to bring about rightness and straightness and health, the ways God desired the world to be, he even makes your soul straight, you being dead in your sin, making you alive in Christ because of his resurrection validating the wrath of God was spent on your behalf and the sinful requirements of sinful men was fulfilled on your behalf in Christ. can now actually walk and be and think and see with eyes that are clear and not foggy. We can now actually work towards and be made straight in Jesus Christ, which we'll end with in just a little bit. But here he's showing us that we need something. He's pushing you and pushing you and pushing you to show you, you can't make straight what's crooked. You know, this is echoed in Luke 3. I don't know if you remember this. We walked through Luke. When John the Baptist comes, he's the forerunner of Jesus, and he says, hey, this Messiah is coming, this deliverer that was promised, and he's going to make straight that which is crooked. Look at Luke 3, verse 3. And he went in all the regions. This is John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, the forerunner of the Messiah. Around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. That's Jesus make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways." Jesus does it. I mean, Solomon's going, hey, we need someone to come to make this thing straight. It's all crooked. And here John the Baptist is going, hey, remember Ecclesiastes 1? You've all read the wisdom literature and the Torah and the law. Hey, remember this was always needed. This was always in the human soul. We were designed to worship, designed for eternity. It was written in our hearts. We'll see in Ecclesiastes 3. So we needed someone to come and, and restore that within us. And so here he says, hey, this has happened. And then he, he shows here that there's this external and internal wickedness that is dealt with in the cross. So he says, hey, Christ comes and the low places of the human heart, the depths of shame, wickedness, condemnation, where you're fully aware of your sin before God, will be healed and brought high. And At the same time, this inward wickedness of the self-exaltation and your pride, your arrogance, and your idolatry, the high places will be leveled because what does the gospel say? Throw yourself on the free mercy of God and you can't do it. So guess what? When you get saved, you can't throw yourself on you. You have to throw yourself on Jesus hoping Jesus saves you. So he goes, hey, the gospel, this Jesus that comes, this Messiah that comes, he's gonna make the high places low. He's gonna make the low places high. He's gonna level the playing field in the gospel of grace, which is by his shed blood and broken body and resurrection, well, he will say, hey, if you're prideful, wicked, external, hey, you gotta be made low. If you realize your sin, you realize your neediness and you realize your shame and condemnation and guilt, you can be brought high. You can be restored and made whole. The gospel is beautiful in that way and it's the only thing that makes you straight it's the only thing that makes what's crooked on the path and even john the baptist shows this so solomon's saying here if you're searching for meaning apart from the god who made you the jesus who can save you you're just chasing the wind he says basically rhetorically here it's as silly as someone trying to make a wind collection Uh, Richard Dawkins, who I'm sure most of us are familiar with, he even came to the same conclusion. He said the human existence is neither good nor evil, neither kind nor cruel, but simply callous, indifferent to all suffering, lacking all purpose. Richard Dawkins agrees with Solomon as far as under the sun. That's the only place he got. He strove to look only under the sun and not beyond the sun. And here he shows us Solomon goes, Dawkins is right. It's ludicrous, it's silly. Searching for meaning apart from a God who made you and a Jesus who can save you, it's like someone chasing the wind. It's like someone came to you and said, hey, you gotta come over, I gotta show you my wind collection. I've got jars and jars of it. I've got strong winds, straight winds, high winds, low winds. Check it out, you unscrew every jar. Man, check out the wind I'm catching. You'd be scratching your head going, wow, that's really silly. That's really meaningless. What are you doing? You can't, you can't catch the wind. Right. You can't find meaning apart from the God who made all things and the Jesus who saved all things. It's basically showing you how far can human wisdom really take you. Human intuition solely tied to the natural, not the supernatural. Verse 16, he keeps on. He says, I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and know madness and folly. I perceive that this also was a chasing, a striving after wind. I love it. Uh, Solomon's super arrogant, but honest and helpful. (laughs) Right? I mean, he's got all these, right? Okay, so he goes, hey, I'm wiser than you, more powerful than you, had more women than you. Can you trust me on this? What have you gone after that I don't have? He says, life doesn't have any intrinsic meaning outside of God in Christ. You can fill it with wisdom or madness and folly. And he starts out and says, I tried wisdom. Now this word wisdom is wisdom solely tied to human intuition and thinking, not tethered to the supernatural or the God who gives revelation. So he says here, hey, I, I tried wisdom. I tried the wisdom of the world. This is the New York City high life. This is drinking expensive wines. This is diving yourself into deep literature that's that Shakespearean. This is you going to Broadway's. This is you only wearing you know, the, the, the highest mode of clothing. This is you doing everything as far as wisdom would say. This is how it's made. This is where you arrive. And he goes, man, here's what's nuts. I found that was a dead end, and I tried being crazy. Now, he's not talking about crazy like Animal House. Okay? He, he, what he's doing here is he's saying, this was a studied and intentional rebellion against a, against a meaningless existence. He said, I even tried being crazy. I even tried rebelling against the senselessness that I knew was senseless anyways. I even tried to defy it with humanitarianism. And even though Mike was, life was meaningless and senseless, in the face of it, I will not be. It's this arrogance that just pushes and pushes, An authentic human existence is somehow you just working for justice and being noble and being compassionate in the face of, again, a never-ending defeat. This is the existentialist we talked about last week. Who says, okay, even though life is senseless, even though I have enough intellectual honesty to realize if I didn't come from anything and I'm not headed anywhere, that, okay, me doing it right now, I'll just be courageous anyways. I'll just try to defy it. But where do you get this standard of decency and morality? Like, where do you get that? Where do you get this standard of, of moral decency where you feel the universe is crooked because you know it's crooked or you wouldn't try to fix it? You get it from your brain. Where do you get your brain? You get your brain from an accident, so you're gonna work your whole life just believing you're an accident that thinks right? You can somehow make straight what is crooked? And of course, that's why, of course it doesn't give Solomon any satisfaction. How could it? He goes, of course madness and folly didn't give me any satisfaction at all. I mean, how do I get this standard? I mean, you can't say heaven is unfair unless you have a standard of a higher heaven still. You can't make that claim. You can't say that. You can't argue that. People think Christians are so naive and ridiculous, but listen to me, if your origin is insignificant and your destination is insignificant, can you have enough intellectual honesty to admit that it is ridiculous for believing you have meaning here and now? It takes a ridiculous amount of faith to believe that. So just be honest. And then work towards maybe senseful, tasteful examination. Go at it. I always said, man, when I hit my crisis of faith in college, I put the Bible on the dock with everything else. But here's what most people do, that the skeptics just only put all the things they want to hear and don't have enough intellectual honesty to also test it with everything else. So read everything. Test everything. Read across the spectrum. Find out what's really true, what's really meaningful, what's really wisdom, and what's really madness and folly. And the God says that he would longs to reveal himself to you, that he longs to show you that he's good, gracious, benevolent, kind, saving, forgiving. A God that shatters the bent and belief of every other system. Who did not create a world out of outburst of love, but created a world out of violence and anger. So as deities wrestled, the mountains were made, the seas were formed. You're not gonna find another God. You're, even your understanding of love can't be extracted from anywhere else other than the scriptures. I always ask people, where are you getting that idea of a deity, a deity of love? It's not found anywhere else in an affectionate, personal, integrated love from a God who made and formed humanity in any other system out there outside of the Christian faith. So where do you even come to conclude that you believe that in love? Where do you even come to believe that a deity is love if he exists? I'm telling you, you're pulling that from the scriptures. Even if you don't want to, you're pulling it from the scriptures, and this is why he ends it in verse 18 saying this. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Solomon just goes, the greater my wisdom, the greater my grief. (laughs) Remember, he's talking about the more you honestly assess life apart from God under the sun, the more sorrow you feel. We have more than almost any other nation, right? And has it brought us great rest? No, we're more stressed and depressed than we've ever been. Right? Has more information really helped? He goes, man, I try to pursue more information. Well, you gather more information on the news. Does it make you encouraged? Or does it bring about more vexation and more sorrow the more you honestly see how this world is just crooked and can't be made straight? He goes, this is the vexation that was happening in me. He says, the more I know, the more I cry. But is there hope, friends? yes. Is there hope to life under the sun? Yes. Is there meaningfulness under the sun? Yes. Is there there great pleasures under the sun? Yes. Is there most profound joy that we can walk in that can't be taken from us? Yes. Can life be made straight? Yes. Can the crookedness be restored? Yes, and it has, right, in Jesus Christ. If you only look at this world from under the sun, there's no meaning, no purpose, no direction. No one's going to argue that. If you solely look at the meaning of life under the sun, but if you get beyond the sun and you see a God who made you this beautiful story where God incarnates himself in the person of Jesus and reconciles us back to the maker of it all and has a destination for us in his love, he made a way when there was no way for us by shedding his own blood, atoning for our sin, taking the blame when it wasn't his to take, owning was, was not his to own, and saying, hey, I'm doing this for you. I'm doing this out of mercy. I'm doing this out of scandalous grace, and when you understand that and receive that and lean fully into that I make you new I don't just make you more moral I don't just make you smarter I literally make you a new creation that thinks breathes looks tastes feels different it's the good news of the gospel it's transforming and now the ceiling is no longer there you get beyond the ceiling to deeper and more profound meaning and life this is why Matthew says in chapter 12 someone greater than Solomon is here he's talking about Jesus Solomon devoted his whole life to learning, to finding the meaning of life, right? And he finds there's none under the sun and Jesus comes who's greater than him, connects you to the living God, gives you his spirit and shows you that there is life beyond the sun and there is meaning now under the sun. So so how does he do that? Let let me end with this. Um, Why is Jesus greater than Solomon? Um, The God of the scriptures Creates, I said one of the things that's distinct is the Christian narrative is a God that bursts forth in love and makes all things in love. And here's what you have to understand. He wires creation, he wires the whole universe to operate in such a way that it will all ultimately magnify his name and renown. Now that's a good thing for us because he knows, right, he's the only deity that can be jealous because he knows your highest joy will be found when your fullest joy is in him, when your worth is in him, when your identity is in him. He actually frees you from the enslavements of the fractures. So he makes everything to ultimately culminate in the praise and renown of his good name. And here's what happens. When you say and defy it, say, I'm not going to walk in that. I'm going to not rule over creation like he gave us in the good mandate, right back in Genesis 1 and 2. I'm going to be ruled by creation. I'm submit to its authority, things get weird. Right, that's the fundamental sin in Romans 1. And so you have people that take all God's good creative order and we don't use it to find good great worship to his name and renown. We use it to try and worship us. We use it to try and worship that thing. And that's why Solomon is saying you're consistently running out of steam. You're consistently hitting a wall. You're consistently not finding the fullness of life that you really want because you're chasing something, the proverbial unicorn that doesn't exist. And it was never made for that, it was never wired for that, and so all of creation partakes in what he's made. And when you partake in what he's made, it stirs you up in gratitude and worship towards his name. So you could just walk through the list. When you eat food, right, you marvel that he's given you taste and can allow you to enjoy that food. It makes you worship his name. When you have marriage, it makes you marvel at the marriage between Christ and his church that he would purchase a bride and never leave her regardless of her. Right? We don't know love like that. We don't know grace like that. We don't know mercy like that. It's why when we enjoy sexual intimacy and the ways that he gifted it to us between man and woman in the context of the marriage, right? There is enjoyment, there is purpose, there is meaning that outflows not in that thing, we're not worshipping that, we're worshipping the God who gave it and made it, right? That's why when you go to work, when your idol is work and it terminates on work and your investment is work and your status is work, he never gave you work, he gave you work to see, use this to glorify my name, use this to show there's a God who's of order, a God who submits to the Father and the Son Jesus as you submit to your boss and be an image bearer of his name, all of a sudden everything has much more profound meaning than the nine to five clock in saving for your bank account that's going to burn anyways when you die. And everybody's gonna be painted up, put in a box when they're done, right? So, so nobody can say, that isn't coming for me, that's not gonna happen for me. So you have to honestly deal with, is Jesus greater than Solomon? Is he the one who comes to make crooked paths straight? Is he the one who fulfills and warms our hearts with the way the universe was wired to be to so where we now live and we're made alive, Ephesians 2 says, in Christ, to where all of a sudden God was once not beautiful and saving and kind and benevolent and all-sustaining and powerful now. now. Now he is. When Jesus once was not glorious and he was not good and he was after taking and robbing joy from you, you see that he's after giving you more joy than you could ever fathom. Instead of buying the lie that what I say is good and what I believe goes and you're getting caught back into what was meant to enslave you in the things that he made, happens. You know, it's amazing We look at the Christian narrative. We were meant to rule over creation. But what do we do? We take creation, we let it rule us. We submit to it. We become enslaved by it. That's the exchange that happened in Romans 1. And Solomon's just revealing that behind the curtain. You know, this is why um, the sexual addict um, has a constantly frustrated soul. Because he keeps going after the next view or the next object when that thing was never designed to satisfy and quench his thirst. So that's why that person can't operate in a oneness of marriage where there's firmness and stability and honesty and foreverness because only in that, when you're not enslaved to having to have the next thing, are you free to enjoy the marriage God gave you to have worship to his name and renown. I say this all the time when I talk to people who have those types of enslavements and I have mine that are different but when you realize by the mercy and grace of Jesus that you can be freed from that, you realize who's really free and who's really enslaved. If you're ruled by creation and not free to worship God, using his creation as a tool to worship, you're enslaved. You're not free. And you're not walking in joy, you're walking in happiness that will terminate at any moment for you. The moment that thing's removed from you or changed or altered, forget it. And that's the great good news of the scriptures. So the fall severs our relationship with God to where everything loses its taste and God comes and makes us new in Jesus Christ, lives a sinless, obedient life, was murdered on a cross, was buried rose again. The resurrection validates. Wrath was spent. Holy requirements were made and paid for. And we get to walk as free men and women in Jesus Christ. We get to find life that is full under the sun. We get to see Jesus Christ and turn to him who is the essence of life. Remember, life is not given by a person. True life is a person. True life is not to be given to you by something outside of you. It's having someone, that person being Jesus Christ, John one who was the word in the beginning and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and he is our life. We have Christ. We have Jesus. We have the one who's stable and sure. So all of a sudden, life under the sun is no longer tasteless, but tasteful. Because in the fracture, all of life lost its taste. And in the resurrection of Jesus, it became tasteful. You know, you can either worship the true God, or we can ultimately destroy ourselves pretending the things we worship outside of him will save you. It's one, it's one or the other. And we choose the path that we are to take because we have to understand that sin is not just a violation of a law. It's not just doing bad. It's a violation of love. It's you loving something else that you were not meant to love more than the God that made it. So when you love something else more than him, that's the fundamental violation. That's idolatry. That is the sin that creeps in. See, a lot of us think sin's doing bad. It's stealing. It's lying. It's sexual morality, It's all those things. Well, yes, that's one aspect. but There's another aspect where sin is an absolute violation of adoring and finding and loving a treasure that is greater than what you have here, that is beyond the sun, not under the sun. And Jesus fixes that for us. So friends, when those times come where the crookedness of life becomes a near and present danger, when the office says to you you're fired, when your spouse says, I'm leaving, when your own family says you're a lunatic for following and loving Jesus, when your kids say, I don't want you as my mom and dad, it's really an opportunity. When the doctor says it's cancer, when the doctor says health is off, it's an opportunity to remember that here's who Jesus is, and here's who I am in Jesus, and this world is crooked, but it's, be, it's being made straight, and I know it's coming for me. Life is not just under the sun. Life is beyond the sun. I have a new Jerusalem coming, a future glory coming, where I will dwell with God and with friends and eat good food, right? We'll never be hungry, but we'll enjoy eating. We'll work and never toil. The curse will be lifted, God will be with man. Listen, everything you long for, I don't care who you are, every bit of what your heart longs for will be the future glory that Jesus promises. Every bit of what you want in life, every bit of what you desire to see, listen, it ain't gonna be under the sun. You're not gonna ever find it. This world will never be and become what you're hoping in your heart it to be and become, yet it will be if you're tied and tethered to Jesus Christ, submit to his name, he's your allegiance, he's your God, you trust him, payment for sin, payment as your God and authority, and you walk in rightness to him. Yeah, you've got that coming, and the scriptures are honest. They say if not, there's everlasting torment, everlasting separation, and this will be as close to heaven as you ever get. That's horrific. If if this world is the closest heaven I'll ever again, it's already crooked and messed up. Yet for those of us who are saved, this is as close to hell as we'll ever see. We've got glory coming. Let's ask God to remember that and walk in that. Father, thank you that you're good and gracious, benevolent, kind. Thank you that you're just, thank you that all that you do is wise. Thank you that we can have assurance and confidence in you giving us revelation to understand how to operate, what to worship what to chase. God, would you give us a moment here to examine our hearts and ask ourselves, where are we chasing the wind? What's the proverbial unicorn in our life that we believe once we saddle on top of it, we will walk into a happy, euphoric existence that validates everything we should know? God, would you free us from that? With the good news of Jesus Christ, a God who came from beyond the sun and lived under the sun to be our debt, to be our ransom, to be our curse, to be our sin, to be our forgiveness, mercy, grace, and restoration, would you, would you free us from a chasing after the wind? Would you help us to reorient our hearts, to chase you, to love you, to surrender to you, to be found in you? Father, would would Mother's Day today for the moms be so enjoyable because it's not tied to the worth of how they are depicted as a mother or how they've performed this week with their family or how many children they have or don't have or what their mom was like, what their earthly experience is? God, would you tie it to something that's so beyond themselves? Would they not violate love? Would they love you? Would you help us to love you more than what we want and what we strive for under the sun? Would our meaning be found in Christ? Would our day-to-day be found in Christ? Would our jobs tomorrow morning be lit up because of Christ? Would our neighbors and the conversations we have with them be different because we have Christ? Would the ways that we reverberate onto others be different because we have Christ? We thank you that you sent Jesus. We thank you for Jesus who is greater than Solomon. And we pray we would worship you and be found in you. Help us, in Jesus' name, amen.